warning before we begin. Today's episode features depictions of violence against children. Caution is advised, especially for listeners under 13. I've said it before. There are some disappearances that never get the media attention they deserve, like Phoenix Colden's. There are others that dominate headlines like Madeline McCann's, but there are a few that have become cultural touchstones, embedding themselves in the history of an entire nation. Today's story is one of those few. For over 50 years, it's left the people of Australia wondering, how can three children go missing in front of hundreds, possibly thousands of witnesses? I'm Sarah Turney, and this is Disappearances, a Spotify original from Parcast. Every Thursday, I'll discuss a new missing person case ripped from history. I want to better understand the many reasons people disappear and the impact their absences can have on those left behind. Today, I'd like you to meet three children who went to a beach in Adelaide, South Australia in 1966 and never came home. Their story marked a turning point in the country's history and remains one of its most haunting mysteries. Their names are Jane, Arna, and Grant Beaumont. To understand the story of the Beaumont children, we have to start with where and when they grew up the suburbs of Adelaide, South Australia in the 1960s. Even back then, Adelaide was densely populated, but it didn't feel like a bustling metropolis. It felt like a small town. It felt safe. Adelaide was the kind of place where people left their doors unlocked and kids walked to school alone. According to author Alan Whitaker, in the early 1960s, there was, quote, Never a thought that something bad could happen to you. That changed when the Beaumonts went missing. Let's go back to January 1966, just after the residents of South Australia ring in a new year. The Adelaide suburb of Somerton Park is considered one of the best places in the world to raise children. The streets are lined with fruit trees and beautiful houses one of which belongs to Jim and Nancy Beaumont. Jim is a traveling salesman. Nancy takes care of their home and three kids, nine-year-old Jane, seven-year-old Arna, and four-year-old Grant. Jane is quiet, bookish, and responsible. Arna is more outgoing. And Grant, the youngest, follows his father wherever he goes like a shadow. Since January is a summer month in Australia, the children are out of school, and they spend most of their break at Glenelg Beach. It's a popular spot for locals and vacationers in the warmer months, and it's just a short drive from their house. Usually, Jim goes to the beach with the kids, but on Tuesday, January 25th, 1966, he can't. He's heading out of town for work. So on his way out of Adelaide, he drives Jane, Arna, and Grant to Glenelg Beach. It's going to be what locals call a scorcher, 
temperatures are expected to reach above 100 degrees Fahrenheit. It would be unfair to make the kids sit at home. They arrive around 9 a.m., and the area is already swarming with people. The kids hop out of the car, walk into the crowd, and Jim pretends to drive off. It's not the first time the children have gone to the beach by themselves, but Jim's interested in seeing how they act when they think they're alone. For the most part, they act exactly how he expects, like kids. They dig in the sand, splash in the water, run around. But Jane, the oldest, is careful. She keeps an eye on her brother and sister. They stay close together, and they never go too far into the water. After about half an hour, Jim feels confident the children are safe. He drives to work, leaving Jane, Arna, and Grant unsupervised. Later that afternoon, Nancy waits for her children at home. They were told to take the 2 p.m. bus back from the beach. A little after two, the bus pulls up in front of the house. When the door opens, all three of her children hop off, looking tired but happy. They've proven they're capable of spending a day at the beach alone, so Nancy lets them do it again. The next morning, January 26th, is Australia Day, a national holiday that's pretty similar to the 4th of July in the United States. Since Jim's out of town, Nancy gets the kids ready for the beach. It's another blistering hot day. They wear swimsuits, shorts, and sandals and Jane carries a shoulder bag with three beach towels inside. Nancy gives Jane eight shillings and six pence, enough to buy bus fare to the beach and back, and to purchase some sandwiches or pastries in case they get hungry. All of the money is in coins. That's important. Just before 10 a.m., Nancy shuffles the kids out the door and tells them to be home by noon. Then she watches them board the bus to Glenelg Beach. It drives out of sight. And Nancy never sees her children again. When the noon bus pulls up outside the Beaumont's house, the children aren't on board. It's a bit of a surprise, but Nancy shrugs it off. Chances are Jane, Arna, and Grant lost track of time, and they'll come home on the next bus. It's not until after the 2 p.m. bus comes and goes with no sign of her children that Nancy starts to worry. She considers walking to the beach to look for them, but she doesn't want to risk missing them. There are a lot of different routes to Glenelg. If she chooses the wrong one, she may not see them on their way home. And if the kids come home to an empty house, they might get scared. So Nancy stays home, struggling to keep her anxiety at bay. A little after 3 p.m., Jim's car rolls into the driveway. He's home early, expecting to see Jane, Arna, and Grant running out the door to greet him. Instead, he sees his panicked wife. Nancy tells him the kids haven't returned from the beach. They've been gone for over five hours. Jim gets back in the car and drives straight to Glenelg to look for them. The search isn't easy. The beach is packed. There are thousands of people milling around, celebrating the holiday. If Jane, Arna, and Grant are there, Jim doesn't find them in the crowd. He rushes back home and picks up Nancy so they can search together. They comb the beach, drive along the streets, check neighbors' houses. 
but they don't find their kids anywhere. They're filled with terror and disbelief. As they search, the Beaumonts cycle through all the possibilities in their minds. Did their children wander off? Run away? Did they accidentally get caught up in the tide and pulled out to sea? Jim and Nancy don't think so. Their kids wouldn't wander off. They know better. They wouldn't run away. They had no reason to. And drowning seems even less likely. With so many people around, someone would have noticed three kids struggling to swim. Jim and Nancy only think of one reason why Jane, Arna, and Grant haven't come home yet. Someone took them. By 5 p.m., Jim and Nancy are at the Glenelg police station. The office is small. There's only one phone and one typewriter in the whole place. The constable takes Jim and Nancy's statement, but he's hesitant to consider the possibility of kidnapping. Three kids, all under the age of 10, getting abducted in plain sight seems too implausible. Nothing like it has ever happened before in Australia. Not really. Officers send the report to the Adelaide Police Headquarters, but they minimize the Beaumont's fears. By 6 p.m., Nancy is back at home, waiting for the kids, just in case they show up. Jim goes back out to search for a while. Shortly after, officers from the Adelaide headquarters show up on the Beaumont's doorstep. They're convinced the kids are hiding somewhere in the house for some reason, as if Nancy and Jim hadn't bothered to check. But an in-depth search of the Beaumont's home quickly proves them wrong. Then, after questioning Jim and Nancy for a second time, officials decide it's time to look for Jane, Arna, and Grant. Jim accompanies the officers. When they reach Glenelg Beach, they find that even though it's getting late, the area's still crowded. Night starts to fall, and without many streetlights around, the search proves difficult. Before long, police decide it's too dark to continue. They call off the search until morning. It's a devastating decision. If you've been listening to this show at all, you know how important time is for any disappearance, but especially when there are missing children involved. It's essential to move quickly. The inexperience of the Adelaide police wastes the most valuable time there is. Without standard procedures or proper protocols in place, they spend so much time just hoping for the best suggesting happier alternatives. Meanwhile, Jim and Nancy know how urgent this is. Their children are gone. They aren't just assuming the worst. They know something bad happened to their kids. As authorities throw in the towel for the night, the Beaumonts are left feeling devastated and helpless. Friends and relatives come to their house to offer support. Nancy is so distraught, one of them calls a doctor to sedate her. Jim refuses to sleep. He goes out searching again, and he doesn't stop. He keeps looking for his kids until 7 a.m., but he doesn't find any trace of his children or any of their belongings. When the sun rises, Jim is delirious with exhaustion and anguish. Nancy is in a heavy, sedative-induced slumber. And the police are finally ready to investigate. 
On the morning of Thursday, January 27, 1966, police in Adelaide, South Australia, finally start searching in earnest for the missing Beaumont children. Nine-year-old Jane, seven-year-old Arna, and four-year-old Grant. It's been almost 24 hours since they left their house to go to Glenelg Beach. Officers focus on two possible options, a kidnapping or an accident. They set up roadblocks along all highways leading out of the state and surveil major airports and railways. The Sea Rescue Squadron assists the investigation. They bring in five boats to search the shoreline. At least 30 officers scour the drainage pipes, backyards, and the vacant properties in and around Somerton Park. As the news of the three missing kids spreads, terror and suspicion grip Adelaide. The Glenelg police station is flooded with tips from people who believe they saw Jane, Arna, and Grant at the beach the day before. It's good news. With corroborating statements from at least seven witnesses, police are able to put together a timeline. What they learn is chilling. Just after 10 a.m. on January 26th, Jane, Arna, and Grant hopped off the bus and ran down to Glenelg Beach. They played for about an hour, but never went further than waist-deep into the ocean. Around 11 a.m., they walked to Collie Reserve, a small grassy courtyard with sprinklers for playing in. They were seen splashing each other with water when, out of the blue, a man approached them. He was around six feet tall, in his early to mid-thirties with an athletic build. He was white, sun-tanned, and he had wavy, light brown or blonde hair parted to one side. And he wore a navy blue Speedo swimsuit with a white stripe. This mystery man talked to the children for a moment, then laid down on his towel and just watched them. After a while, he joined them again and played with the kids in the sprinklers. At some point, probably around 11.30, the mystery man approached an elderly couple sitting nearby. He reportedly asked them a question, something along the lines of, have you seen anyone near our things? Our money has been stolen. Using the word our to reference himself and the three kids. Because of his comfort level around the children and how he spoke, onlookers assumed he was the kid's father. No one really questioned the mystery man's actions until he started to dress the kids, helping put on their shorts. This struck a few witnesses as strange. Jane was nine years old. She was fully capable of dressing herself, but no one intervened. The mystery man led the kids away from the beach and towards the changing sheds. He put on dry clothes while the kids waited on a nearby bench. And that was the last anyone saw of the man. But there was one more confirmed sighting of the children. Around noon, Jane, Arna, and Grant entered Wenzel's, a bakery that was just a short walk from the beach. The children had been to Wenzel's before, so the clerk recognized them. Jane walked up to the counter and asked for a number of pastries and sodas, which wasn't unusual but she also requested a meat pie, something the Beaumont children had never ordered before. The clerk noted that it was a lot of food for three kids, more than they could normally afford. And when it came time to pay, 
Jane pulled out a one-pound note, which stood out. It was a lot of money. Author Alan Whitaker compared the transaction to buying a bag of lollipops with a $100 bill. And as I mentioned, Nancy had only given the kids money in coins. But after the kids left the bakery, that's where officials' timeline ended. That's where the reported sightings stopped. The witness statements raise obvious questions. Like, did the mystery man give Jane the one-pound note and send them on an errand to the bakery? Was the meat pie for him? Did the kids meet back up with the mystery man after leaving Wenzel's? Officials don't have real answers, but with a clearer picture of what happened that day, kidnapping seems like the most likely explanation. For authorities, the mystery man's behavior sounded methodical. The way he gained the trust of the children, and how he acted like the kid's guardian. They theorized that the man actually stole the Beaumont children's money himself, so he could pretend to help them. This served two purposes. First, the children would think he was on their side. And second, it would leave them more vulnerable, unable to afford the bus fare home on their own. The man's actions sounded premeditated, like those of an experienced criminal which worries investigators. But one day after the Beaumont children's disappearance, police have multiple descriptions of the mystery man. They're hopeful that more witnesses will come forward with additional information. And that's exactly what happens. Over the next two days, hundreds more people call into police headquarters, claiming they've seen the Beaumont children or the mystery man. But the Glenelg police don't have enough resources to handle the tips. With only one phone and a single typewriter, officials struggle to document and follow up on leads. Even with so much information to go on, even with witnesses who spoke directly to the mystery man, officials don't confirm his identity or find any clues to the children's whereabouts. But on January 29th, three days after Jane, Arna, and Grant were last seen. The Sunday Mail prints a shocking headline about the investigation. In all capital letters, it reads, Sex Crime Now Feared. According to the article, law enforcement believe the Beaumont children were abducted and killed by a sexual predator. Now, on one hand, the police are right to pursue this possibility. Eyewitnesses have reported predatory behavior that day, like how the mystery man felt comfortable dressing the kids in a public place. And statistically speaking, when a child is kidnapped by a stranger, there's often some sexual component to the crime. Plus, 40% of all stranger abductions end in the child's death, with the murders typically occurring within the first two days. But what I don't understand is, Investigators speculating with reporters at a point where so little is actually known. What is a fear-mongering headline like that going to solve? Who is it serving? Not Jim and Nancy. They're still holding out hope that their children are alive. They have to. It's what keeps them going. They make public pleas, begging the suspected kidnapper to release their kids. Nancy basically lives by her front door, praying her children will show up any second. 
By February, around a week after the kids went missing, it's not just Jim and Nancy who want answers. The whole country is pining to know what happened to the Beaumont children, and a widespread desperation fuels speculation. Conspiracy theorists show up at Jim and Nancy's door spewing wild theories about their kids. A Dutch clairvoyant comes out of the woodwork, claiming the children weren't abducted, but had some kind of accident that left them buried alive. Jim and Nancy become the victims of a cruel hoax. A teenager writes letters to the Beaumonts, pretending to be Jane, saying if they travel to a small town in Victoria, their children will be returned. Jim drives over six hours and spends three days waiting outside a post office for Jane, Arna, and Grant. Only to later find out the letters were fake. After about two years, Jim and Nancy retreat from the public eye. The case goes cold. Years turn into decades. And while the Beaumonts avoid the media, their story never really leaves the spotlight. It becomes a fixture in Australian culture. People will say the country lost its innocence on January 26, 1966. For years afterward, when kids in Adelaide asked to go out on their own, they're met with a grim reminder. You know what happened to the Beaumont children, people will say. But the problem is, even to this day, nobody really does. All we have is a description of their alleged kidnapper and a list of men who potentially fit the bill, including one Australian millionaire. By the early 2000s, it's been over 40 years since the Beaumont children disappeared. No trace of the children or their belongings has been found. But countless theories still circulate about what happened to Jane, Arna, and Grant back in 1966. Most assume the kids were abducted, but there's been no indication one way or the other whether the children survived or not. So, even after more than four decades, Jim and Nancy hold out hope that their kids could still be alive. Now, this might sound unlikely, but there have been plenty of cases where children have been unwittingly raised by their kidnappers. And since 1966, various sightings of people thought to be Jane, Arna, or Grant have popped up. None of them could be 100% corroborated. But without their bodies, the answer to what actually happened to them most likely rests with the man who most likely took them. Which is why most theories surrounding the Beaumont children's disappearance center around the identity of the mystery man. By 2005, police have investigated a number of local sex offenders in Australia and ultimately land on three main suspects. To this day, none have ever been charged with any crime related to the Beaumont children, but I'll walk you through why they were put on the police's radar in the first place. First, Arthur Stanley Brown. By the time Brown died, he'd been charged but not convicted with two counts of murder, six counts of rape, and 45 counts of sexual assault. 
Brown was also the primary suspect in a 1973 kidnapping. That year, two young girls were abducted from the Adelaide Oval Stadium. Multiple witnesses watched an older man who looked just like Brown carry them away. No one intervened. It was an extremely public kidnapping, eerily similar to what happened to Jane, Arna, and Grant seven years before. So his suspected involvement in the 1973 case also made him a suspect in the Beaumonts. Second, there was Bevan Spencer Von Einem. In 1984, Von Einem was convicted of murdering a 15-year-old boy, whom he'd also sexually assaulted. Years after his sentencing, the details of his trial were made public. They included testimony from a man, listed only as Mr. B, who stated that Von Einem once privately confessed to murdering the Beaumont children. Von Einem shared some physical similarities with the police sketch of the mystery man seen at Glenelg Beach. Finally, there was Derek Percy, a pedophile, convicted murderer, and suspected serial killer. Percy apparently had reason to believe he was near Glenelg Beach on the day the Beaumont children were abducted, and according to one report, when Percy was asked point blank if he murdered Jane, Arna, and Grant, he said he couldn't remember. As I said, officials haven't found evidence to charge any of these men, and there's reason to doubt their involvement. Von Einem's alleged confession was hearsay, and though some of them shared physical similarities with the police sketch of the mystery man, none of them matched his reported age. Most witnesses claimed the mystery man looked to be in his early to mid-30s, but in 1966, Brown was 54, Von Einem was 20, and Percy was 17. Still, Brown, Von Einem, and Percy remain the leading suspects in the Beaumont case, right up until 2006. That year, Alan Whitaker, the author I keep mentioning, works alongside researcher Stuart Mullins to publish a book called Searching for the Beaumont Children. It's the first comprehensive written account of the case, and it inspires someone to come forward with a new suspect. In 2007, a woman named Angela Fife contacts Alan Whitaker about her former father-in-law, Harry Phipps. Angela had long suspected that her father-in-law had a hand in the Beaumont children's disappearance, but she kept quiet out of fear. After his death in 2004, she feels more comfortable coming forward. Harry was a businessman and millionaire who, according to Angela, sexually abused his two sons for years. This included Angela's ex-husband, Hayden. After speaking with Angela, Alan contacts Hayden, who confirms Angela's account. He says his father was a violent, manipulative pedophile. Now, at this point, Alan Whitaker and Stuart Mullins have spoken to a lot of people who think they know what happened to the Beaumont children, but Hayden and Angela's story sticks out for two reasons. Unlike the other suspects I've mentioned, Harry Phipps matches the physical description and the approximate age of the mystery man. And in 1966, he owned a house just a few hundred feet from Glenelg Beach. Plus, 
Hayden claims that on the day the Beaumont children disappeared, he saw Jane, Arna, and Grant in his backyard around lunchtime with his father. Hayden never saw the kids leave, but later, he watched his father pack several large bags into the trunk of his car. For Alan and Stuart, this feels like a huge breakthrough, but when they contact authorities, law enforcement just shrugs them off. They basically say the tip is a long shot, and they're too busy dealing with other active cases to do anything about it. So Alan and Stuart spend the next six years independently investigating Harry Phipps. They walk away believing Hayden in Angela's account and feeling like Harry is the most likely suspect in the Beaumont children's disappearance. And I have to agree, of all the suspects, Harry Phipps checks the most boxes. He matches the description of the mystery man almost perfectly. He was an alleged pedophile. He lived right by Glenelg Beach. And he was a millionaire, so he had more than enough money to hand out one pound notes. In 2013, Alan Whitaker and Stuart Mullins publish a follow-up to their first book. This one is about Harry Phipps' potential involvement in the Beaumont children's disappearances. In response, two men come forward with even more damning testimony. In the 1960s, Harry Phipps owned a factory in Adelaide, which sat on a five-acre plot of land. The two men tell authorities that the weekend after the Beaumont children disappeared, Harry Phipps hired them to dig a large ditch somewhere on the property. When they were finished, he paid them in one-pound notes. This finally gets law enforcement's attention, as well as the media's. News outlets publish stories claiming the Beaumont children's case is as good as solved, but when the men bring officials to the spot where they remember digging the ditch, police authorize an excavation of the area. And all they uncover is garbage. It's a rubbish trench, not a grave. Five years later in 2018, law enforcement decides to try again. They use a special machine to search Phipps' property for what they call anomalies in the soil, essentially areas where there could be human remains. The machine registers in one spot, but again, an excavation doesn't turn up anything significant. Hayden and Angela have since pointed to another area on the property, a sand pit on the opposite side of the factory where the Beaumont children might have been buried. But officials have called off all future excavation efforts. In their eyes, it's too expensive to keep digging when there's no guarantee anything will be uncovered. And as far as I can tell, that's the last update in the Beaumont children's case. More than half a century later, it still feels like we're so close to real answers, but they're just out of reach. So where do we go from here? Obviously, we can't go back in time and change what happened to Jane, Arna, and Grant, but we can learn from it. There's a psychological phenomenon that helps explain how a triple abduction can happen in plain sight in front of hundreds, if not thousands, of people. Why people who felt uncomfortable by the mystery man's actions didn't intervene. You might be familiar with it. It's called the bystander effect. It seems counterintuitive, but the bigger the crowd, the less likely we are as humans to offer assistance in a seemingly non-violent emergency. 
we assume someone else will take care of this, or it's none of my business. I'm not blaming anyone who was there that day, apart from the man who likely kidnapped them. But the Beaumont children's disappearance is a reminder of the power of speaking up when and if you see someone who could be in danger. That doesn't mean you should put yourself in harm's way. Speaking up could look like a number of things. It doesn't have to mean handling a situation on your own, but it's almost always worth it. At the end of the day, you might be wrong. You might even offend someone or feel embarrassed but you could end up helping someone who needs it, or even saving a life. Now, I believe that answers are out there. Alan Whitaker and Stuart Mullen's work proves that progress can still be made in cold cases, even decades after the fact, and they're worth fighting for. Nancy Beaumont died in 2019 without ever knowing what happened to her kids. But as of this recording, Jim is alive. He's in his 90s. So there's still a chance to give a father answers. To keep digging, both literally and figuratively. To give the Beaumont children justice. To put a nation's ghost to rest. And I don't think anyone can put a price on that. Thank you for listening. In the time it took you to listen to this episode, 30 people disappeared in the United States alone. If you or someone you know needs assistance with a missing persons case, please visit seasonofjustice.org. Season of Justice is a nonprofit organization that provides funding to law enforcement agencies and families to help solve cold cases. For full disclosure, I am a member of the board. It's a great resource for both law enforcement and families in order to bring closure to those impacted by unsolved violent crime. You can find all episodes of Disappearances and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Disappearances stars Sarah Turney and is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound design by Alex Button, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Disappearances was written by Karis Allen, with writing assistance by Nora Patel and Connor Sampson, fact-checking by Haley Milliken, and research by Mickey Taylor. To hear more stories hosted by me, check out my other podcast, Voices for Justice.